1. No End in Sight, 1992 To the casual visitor, the west wing of the 11th floor of St. Joseph Hospital didn't look like a vision of hell. The elevator opened into the solarium, a glass-enclosed semicircular space with a panoramic view of Lincoln Park and Lake Michigan. In the distance, sailboats plied the waters beyond a steady stream of traffic on Lakeshore Drive. In the foreground, there were joggers on tree-shaded paths. Northward, fashionable high-rises lined the park. To the south rose the iconic skyscrapers of downtown Chicago. What wasn't visible, to the west, was Boys Town, the city's gayest neighborhood, a jumble of bars, restaurants, sex shops, and inexpensive apartments, the epicenter of the AIDS epidemic in Chicago. It was September 1992, and the city brimmed with life, in stark contrast to 11 West, our AIDS unit, where death reigned. At 7 a.m., when I arrived for hospital rounds, the solarium was usually empty but occasionally a patient sat staring at the scenic vista, his back to me and his body connected to an intravenous line that snaked from a plastic bag atop a metal pole and disappeared into an arm I could not see, or a patient's lover or family waited for me, or one of the other doctors who took care of AIDS patients, seeking an update on their loved one's condition or to ask questions we often couldn't answer. These uncomfortable encounters foreshadowed my visits to the sick and dying patients on the ward. Despite the picturesque urban vista, I could never deceive myself. Eleven years into the AIDS epidemic, Eleven West was not the place of hope we had conceived of, but one of darkness and despair. Seen from above, St. Joseph Hospital was the shape of an enormous cross, thirteen stories tall. It was a Catholic institution administered by the Daughters of Charity, an order that once commanded the largest nonprofit fleet of hospitals in the United States. The daughters soft-pedaled their religion. There were, of course, the requisite crucifixes in strategic places, and in the main lobby there was a larger-than-life color photograph of the current pope in full regalia. But everyone was welcome regardless of religious belief, or non-belief, race, gender, or sexual orientation. During those times when I felt frustrated by our failure to discover life-saving treatments, bristled at the bigotry of evangelists like Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson, who railed against those infected with HIV as sinners deserving their horrible fate, or struggled with internal demons, guilt about my own good health or rage at my impotence, I sometimes forgot that St. Joe's, as we called it, was a refuge of tolerance and support. But if it hadn't been it would have been impossible to practice there. I'd exited the elevators on the 11th floor so many times during the four years since we'd established 11 West that I rarely bothered to look out the floor-to-ceiling windows. On most days, I was in a rush, like most doctors, pushed and pulled in many directions. I had a lot to accomplish in the two to three hours I could dedicate to rounds. 11 West lay straight ahead, its gleaming linoleum floors forming an elongated, truncated triangle. When the doors to the patient rooms were open, they emanated rectangular splashes of light. It reminded me of a runway or stage, but the drama didn't occur in the hallways. It was on the sidelines, in each room, where awful things unfolded. I stopped at the nurse's station first, gossiping for a few minutes with the unit secretary, Flo, or Mary P., 
and the nurses, like the two Carols, Rita or Roger, who dedicated their professional lives to caring for the patients, mostly gay men of all races and ethnicities from every part of the city and suburbs, who were admitted to, discharged from, readmitted to, or died on the unit. Then I extracted my charts from a carousel and sat down at the long desk, the binder spread out before me like a giant hand of cards. For the next few minutes, I caught up on the previous day and night's events, reviewing the notes of the nurses, interns, residents, and consultants, and gathering my thoughts about my patients' diagnoses and prognoses. Doctors are often referred to as healers, or as practitioners of the healing arts. I thought of the two cardiovascular surgeons on staff, who performed life-saving procedures like cardiac bypass surgery, or my orthopedic friends, who fixed hips and repaired other fractures that in a distant era would have left their patients permanently crippled or deformed. But on 11 West, I wasn't healing anyone. I was ministering to my patients, as doctors did in the pre-antibiotic era, doling out bad news, holding a hand in sympathy, or expressing my condolences in the face of an incurable fatal disease. I felt more like a failure than a success, even though HIV-infected gay men from far and wide sought me out because of my expertise and reputation. As I made my way to the patient's rooms, my shoes clicking on that glistening surface, the pungent odors of sanitizer, shit, and urine, a noxious smell combination unique to hospitals and nursing homes, wafted into my nose. From some of the rooms came sounds of suffering, groans, cries of varying intensities, hacking coughs, vomiting. If I heard laughter, I suspected dementia or an inappropriate response to illness, for there was little to laugh about on 11 West. Rounding on terminally ill patients filled me with intense sadness and wasn't something I looked forward to. My patients hung on to every one of my words and gestures, for what I said or how I said it held the key to their salvation or pointed the way to their demise. It was a pressure almost too much for me to bear. The first room I entered that morning was that of Troy, a 28-year-old HIV-infected gay black man, his skin sallow and his head shaved. One week earlier, I'd sat on the side of his bed holding his hand as we talked about how he'd get out of the hospital and resume a normal life for a while. I'd been treating him with intravenous antibiotics for a miserable sinus infection, its severity due to his HIV infection, but each day he descended deeper into a depression as he spent more time in bed clutching the left side of his head in pain. On the intended day of discharge, he refused to go home because he still felt terrible, he said, but I couldn't understand why. One week should have been enough time to make inroads against a severe sinus infection, I thought. Troy had few telltale signs of AIDS, no thrush, a white coating in the mouth and throat caused by a yeast infection, no enlarged lymph nodes, and no purplish lesions of Kaposi's sarcoma, a type of AIDS cancer. His CD4 count, a marker for the state of his immune system, was low but not profoundly low. The absence of such signs had made me too complacent about his health. After examining him and finding nothing wrong, I asked him to stand up. Since his admission, I had not watched him walk or move about his room. This turned out to have been a serious oversight. Bracing himself on the handrails, he rose from the bed, took a few steps forward, and staggered, which startled me. Laying my hands on his shoulders, 
I kept him from falling to the ground as it dawned on me that he was suffering from something more serious than sinusitis and depression. And he was. The next day, he had a seizure and lost consciousness. A CAT scan of his brain showed multiple tumors, diffuse disease of the white matter, and swelling of the brain, images suggesting that his death was imminent. I had not suspected the grave diagnosis, brain lymphoma. So convinced was I that something more benign was causing his headaches and fatigue. An x-ray of his sinuses had indeed shown sinusitis. Miraculously, he improved after I prescribed high doses of steroids, which alleviated pressure on the part of the brainstem that controlled his vital functions. But that was temporary. Several days after the seizure, I found Troy alert but debilitated by severe neurological deficits. His room was dark except for a television blasting inanities. In the flickering artificial light, he lay on his back with his neck twisted awkwardly to the left, looking at the brain lesions, as the consulting neurologist, Dr. L., explained, like someone who'd had a stroke. His lower lip protruded, and he breathed through his mouth, but both lips were scaly and cracked. His face glistened with oily secretions from the pores, and he smelled of urine and sweat despite the nurse's best efforts to keep him clean. How much had changed in so short a time, I thought. A vibrant young man seemed to have aged fifty years in the space of two weeks. Pity gripped me as I approached the bedside, but as a doctor I had learned to suppress emotions, for they can cloud clinical judgment and lead to faulty decisions. A sick person wants to see strength in his doctor, not weakness, although too much suppression makes the doctor seem cold and uncaring. Each time I confronted a dying patient, or any patient for that matter, I struggled to find the right balance between compassion and aloofness. This struggle took place scores of times every day. The internal conflict manifests itself in my journals, where one and you often replaces the more personal I. Unconsciously, I gave myself permission to detach from my true feelings and excuse myself from taking responsibility for painful decisions and actions. I know this now, after decades of reflection. Pulling up a chair, I sat down beside the head of the bed, took Troy's hand, and called his name. Hello, Troy responded in a garbled voice, unable to turn his head toward me. The muscles on the right side of his neck seemed to bulge because of the strain on the left. With his neck bent in such a vulnerable way, he reminded me of a sacrificial lamb waiting to be slaughtered. An impairment of his eye muscles made each eye rove separately and prevented him from looking at me directly. Although when I asked him to, he squeezed my fingers with his left hand, indicating higher cognitive function, he couldn't move the rest of his arm. I asked myself if this was the best he'd ever be, and concluded it probably was. What a nightmare. I should never have tried to treat him, I lamented inside. It would have been best to let him die rather than keep him in the hospital to languish in such a dependent state for the remaining days or weeks of his life. I didn't tell him this, because it was my job to give him some degree of hope, even in the most hopeless situations. Yet, given the severity of his disability, it wasn't possible to have a meaningful conversation with him. All I could do was pat him on the shoulder, grope for a few reassuring, if meaningless, words, and move on. And so I did. The next patient I visited was a man named Robert who suffered from an AIDS-related brain infection known as PML, progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy. Like Troy's, his head was twisted to the left, 
which was only a coincidence, for the young men suffered from different brain diseases. Each time I stopped in his room during rounds, he recognized me, even when I thought he couldn't see me. It was as if he had a sixth sense. At the sight or sound of me, or anyone, he reared up stiff as a rocking horse, head arcing forward, knees bowed toward his face. Despite the devastating brain infection, he had complete control over his mental faculties. Before his illness, Robert had performed in the chorus of a major opera company. Now dozens of get-well cards from fellow artists and friends cluttered the room. Cards had been taped to the curtains that divided his space from that of another AIDS patient. Vases of flowers had transformed the dreary windowsills into a miniature greenhouse. A note on the dresser beside his bed begged the staff not to remove a ribbon pinned to his gown. It was a symbol from his church, but I'd not seen it in days. A copy of Opera News lay unopened on a chair. A once corpulent black man, Robert had withered nearly into a skeleton. When I first met him, he had been something of a bon vivant. He loved to tell stories, and it was a pleasure listening to his rich baritone voice. He all but trilled at the ends of sentences. He told me once about a rehearsal of an opera, the Rosen Cavalier, by the German composer Richard Strauss. As he sang, he had flung out his arms, inadvertently striking one of the leading sopranos, who had a notorious reputation for confrontation and ill temper, in the face. The conductor stopped the orchestra, and several painful seconds passed as everyone on stage froze in horror. Mortified and expecting to be fired on the spot, Robert apologized profusely. But, unhurt, the soprano waved him off with a smile, and the rehearsal continued. Trill. Now, although he didn't have a fever, Robert's brow was beaded with sweat. As he drooled, an unpleasant odor wafted from his mouth, like the acrid smell of old blood. Unable to control the movements of his arms and legs, he couldn't hold a cup or plastic urinal. A Foley catheter had been inserted into his penis to prevent him from soiling himself. The skin of his thighs, calves, and feet, taut with fluid, looked like shiny shellac table legs. He asked me for a glass of water. In fact, he ritualistically asked every visitor for water. Refusing a straw, he drank at a glacial pace. I could hear him swallow in love.